Okay, we're live. Good morning, everyone. Today is the February 5th edition of the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. Today, we're joined as usual by Dr. Anthony Montero. We also have today Nuri, Michelle, Raju, who's joining us from India, Serafina, Jahan, Caleb, and Samir. And today we're going to be continuing our study of Hegel's Science of Logic. Um, but before we begin, I'd like to ask Dr. Anthony Montero to give an introduction. Thank you, Emily, and good morning to everybody. And uh, I guess the first thing I want to do is to congratulate Meghna Chandra on a successful defense of her dissertation. Uh, so she's now Dr. Meghna Chandra. So I'm compelled to call her Doc. So that way I'm taking that pressure off of me. Uh, but uh, it was, it's a great dissertation uh, characterized by a very, very high intellectual and moral uh, standard. Uh, she didn't just do uh, something superficial so she could get by. She did something which she hoped would be a contribution to freeing working people from the regime of gentrification and exploitation that uh, uh, dominates the city of Philadelphia. And I think the early reports from various presentations that she gave to housing activists and others is that they feel it is a contribution to the struggle. Uh, it, was, it was very interesting, uh, a lot to talk about. Uh, and hopefully as and when we celebrate the 10th anniversary of the free school, we will be able to get the people who have recently completed their dissertations in the free school and have some sort of panel or discussion of what they did and what, and what their work, um, the impact or significance of their work. Uh, one thing, I'll just say this quickly. They, the three, uh, Brandon, Divya, and now Magna, all did their dissertations uh, on Du Bois or something to do with Du Bois's theoretical uh, paradigm and so on. And they uh, used it as a research framing. And all three of them faced every conceivable opposition, uh, just unbelievable. And they all came through uh, brilliantly, I think. So I just want to thank her, uh, or congratulate her, I should say. And uh, again, I think, you know, to thank the free school, which I'm, I now see as a beloved community of people who are, who exists to help and assist one another as part of helping to change the world. And I think we can't get that twisted. Uh, 
a lot of people do, but we can't get it twisted. But anyway, uh, just I just want to say quickly uh, what we talked about last week, and then of course we'll get into the reading of the uh, preface to the second edition of the Science of Logic. We did not last week directly discuss the science of logic, but we discussed the revolution in physics that is quantum physics or quantum mechanics and that development in the mid 1920s, which raised every kind of philosophical question related uh, to knowledge, to the subject of knowledge that is the researcher, the philosopher, the, the uh, observer, uh, the experimenter, uh, and what this suggested, uh, which were questions first fully uh, fleshed out and discussed by Immanuel Kant, uh, and how the uh, development of quantum physics was undermined uh, by the Cold War, where they, the powers that be literally said, uh, everything that quantum physics can give us, we can translate either into weapons or into uh, marketable devices like computers and uh, cell phones and that type of thing. And let's not uh, solve all of the philosophical problems that quantum physics raise and solving the philosophical issues are important and, and maybe even decisive to moving the whole project of quantum physics subatomic particles and all of that forward. Um, it was aborted, as Raju said, it was a cold war within physics and within science. Uh, this takedown of the philosophical questions uh, received another uh, uh, benefit with the unraveling of the Soviet Union. And uh, I think you all know my uh, take on this, that Gorbachev and the top leadership of the state and of uh, the Soviet Communist Party, enough of them, if not all of them, had become agents of Western intelligence. And when you put it all together, it's, it's uh, to me, it's undeniable. I mean you know, just too much give back and give away, including the whole field of ideology. The significance of this is that dialectical logic, the assumption that there is a world beyond us that we can know, that the researcher and that which is being researched are in a dialectical relationship that Hegel, Hegel's science of logic, though incomplete, and the second 
preface is in 1831, the year that he dies. It's not complete. However, it is a revolutionary uh, intervention, if you will, into the history of modern Western philosophy. Uh, and this joining of philosophy to science is the very thing that the Cold War and the takedown of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Academy of Science and Philosophy, taking all of those infrastructures down meant that philosophy would not be allowed to develop side by side with physics and biology and chemistry, uh, but those sciences would ne neither would they be able to, to develop because the researchers would be uh, would would not be equipped uh, with the philosophy and the questions that philosophy brings to science. So. Uh, I, that's, I'm just saying all of that to say that what we are doing is so important for this time, for this struggle, for this moment in history, for this transition. And certainly, uh, You cannot assume, no one should assume that a philosophically naive and backward leadership can effectively lead without philosophy and knowing philosophy and appreciating philosophy and connecting philosophy to all of the struggles, to all of the air, to all of the uh, possibilities of knowing the world. Um, it's just like a dog chasing its tail. You never go anywhere. Uh, and in a lot of ways, that's where we are now. Uh, so uh, I guess I don't have anything else to say on that. I, Turn it back over to you, Emily. Thanks for the introduction, Doc. Um, you'll still always be the Doc, so you can't shake off that title too easily. I'm trying to, Emily, you don't know how much I'm trying to get out from under that. You know? <laughs> I wish I could just be, you know, whatever. Mm. I don't know about that, <laughs> but I thought that was a great introduction also as a recap from last week, why we talked so much about physics, like both not just as a field, but also historically physics, what it meant. And I like the way you also said that philosophy side by side, like the, the importance of philosophy developing side by side with science, um, because also I think we've talked about this a lot, but science as a field and like a knowledge and a tool, I think is misconstrued and misunderstood today in the way that we're educated about science. Um, yeah. Yeah. But we, maybe we can um, go directly into the reading. 
with Michelle. Sure. So we're continuing reading the second preface and we sent the PDF through in the news, in the weekly newsletter. Um, and maybe someone can post the reading if it hasn't been posted yet on the live stream, uh, but I'm just reading from the same PDF that we've been reading from. You're not gonna put it up on the screen? Oh, there it is, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I'm impatient. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, I believe this is where we left off last time at this paragraph here. I might be a paragraph or two off, but um, I think it's fine if we start up again here. Okay, so this is page 16 and page 89 in the PDF. Enough said to dispel any notion that thought determinations are only for use are only a means. More important is the related further notion that they are external forms. The activity of thought at work in us across all representations, interests, and actions is, as we have said, unconsciously busy, the natural logic. Explicit consciousness is of the content, the subject matters of representations, all the things that interest us, Taken in this relation, thought determinations are generally taken to be forms that only attach to the content without however being this content itself. But if the truth of the matter is, as was already stated and is otherwise generally admitted, that the nature, the specific essence, that which is truly permanent and substantial in the manifold and accidentality of appearance and fleeting externalization is the concept of the thing, the universal which is present in it, just as there is present in each human being, although universally unique, a specific principle that makes him human, or in each individual animal, a specific principle that makes it animal. If this is true, then there is no saying what such an individual could still be if this foundation were removed from him no matter how many the predicates with which he would still be otherwise adorned. If that is, such a foundation can be called a predicate like the rest. The indispensable foundation, the concept, the universal which is thought itself, provided that with the word thought, one can abstract from figurative representation, cannot be regarded as just as indifferent as just an indifferent form that attaches to a content. But these thoughts of all things natural and spiritual, even the substantial content, still contain a variety of determinacies and are still affected by the distinction of soul and body, of concept and reality relative to it. The profounder foundation is the soul standing on its own the pure concept, which is the innermost moment of the objects, their simple life pulse, just as it is of the subjective thinking of them. <laughs> to bring to consciousness this logical nature that animates the spirit, that moves and works within it, this is the task. The broad distinction between instinctive act, an act which is intelligent and free, 
is that the latter is performed consciously when the content that motivates a subject to action is drawn out of its immediate unity with the subject and is made to stand before it as an object. Then it is that the freedom of spirit begins. The same spirit who, when thought is an instinctive activity, is caught up in the web of its categories and is splintered into a material of infinite variety. Here and there on this say something. Yeah, this, this is just so everybody gets kind of clear. You know, he's a, he's a 19th century person and a German and he's speaking, but what he's basically saying is that uh, what uh, separates or differentiates human beings from all other natural forms of life is that we emerge from nature, but we have this capacity to conceptualize and we think through concepts. Now, I want you to pay a close attention to two words that he uses, object and subject. Uh, and here we see him separating himself from Immanuel Kant. What Immanuel Kant said very simply is that indeed we are capable of thought, of, of reasoning and of conceptualization and finding what is general or universal in the specific. In other words, what we call a chair is based upon um, what you could call chairness, the essence of a chair. You know, so we're not dealing with each specific chair and having to, every time we encounter a chair, say, well, what is this? It looks like a chair, might be a chair. No, we, we have an, a, a general concept. So when we encounter a chair, when we encounter a chair, uh, we already have a concept for it uh, as such. But here is where Hegel differs from Kant. Kant said, and if, if I'm not clear, just ask me a question about this. Kant said, we could only know those things that we experience through our senses. He called all of that phenomena, phenomena. He said also, we cannot know the, wor the world beyond our senses, our experiences, and that world of as what he called essences or what he called noumena, N-O-U-M-E-N-A. So you have these two things, phenomenon, which are given to us through our senses and, and so on that are worked and reworked in Kant's idea through these categories of, of conceptualization categories of reasoning. What Hegel is saying, in fact, there is something out there and we 
he ultimately is going to say, can know that. He is very critical of Kant stopping knowledge at phenomenon. That's, I just wanted to, I don't know, does that make sense to everybody? Mm -hmm. This debate precisely is at the essence of the philosophical debate of quantum physics, even up to this day, even up to this day. And you can go to Stephen Hawking, you can go to, well, of course, Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg, but Stephen Hawking's or, uh, I wouldn't say Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan is a radical left-wing uh, outlier. Everybody's heard of Carl Sagan, I think, you know, uh, but he was the one who opposed the Cold War when in physics. But they've kicked the can down the road for so long for now uh, approaching a hundred years or maybe more, a hundred years, you know. Uh, and, um, and now it's kind of, I think we're, we're approaching a moment of truth where it's gonna have to be a decision made. Is the world only what we conceive or what we experience? Or is the world both what we experience and what we have not yet experienced? Uh, could I ask you to uh, repeat uh, the comparison? I understood you were saying uh, Kant, the phenom relationship between phenomena and noumena. Mm -hmm. But can you repeat how that uh, differs with uh, Hegel? Yeah. See, and this, uh, this is the big question. What can be known? Uh, what Kant said is that there is a world out there, perhaps, he would say, that we don't know if it exists, and if it exists, we don't know it. That is noumena, or what he at other times called essences. That world is beyond the rational conceptual range of the philosopher, of the thinker, of the scientist. You can call that world the objective world. What Kant said, and I, I hope I'm, I'm making myself clear here. He, he said quite simply that the only world available to us to know is the world that we experience. There, there's a world out there, but we can't experience. We will never know things in their essences. Or an objective world beyond our experience. What Hegel says 
that well, he, you you'd have to agree with Kant that yes, to know something you have to experience as, as a human being. But what Hegel says that over historical time, the dialectical relationship of the subject, the philosopher, the researcher, and the world beyond him or her goes on. It is kind of a movement like, um, like in um, the curve that talks about uh, calculus and calculus approaching a point that you never quite get to, but you come closer and closer. So Kant, I mean, Hegel is talking about an infinite knowledge process that is historical. Now, when we go further into this, we'll, you know, because, you know, they're, they're, they're counter positions, they're positions that uphold Kant. In fact, one of the strongest hands in philosophy, serious philosophy of science is Kantianism or what we call neo-Kantianism. That was Niels Bohr back in the, in the 1920s. That was Werner Heisenberg. And that's many other writers for the last hundred years that have um, said that nothing exists until the experimenter, uh, the physicist experiences it. The experience of it brings it into existence. That is a hell of a claim. And forgive me for you know, if I'm going too long, but see, that is where the rubber hits the road. Is that true? Is that true? Because if it is true on a wide scale, it goes against every assumption that most of us have about the world and about reality. And that's why when you read people who write about quantum physics and the quantum mechanic revolution and the quantum physics revolution, what they say, and I think it's a, um, a BS argument, I was gonna say a sophistic argument, but I don't, wanna, I don't feel like defining that word. So I'll just say a BS argument is that the revolution in quantum mechanics is a philosophical revolution. And what quantum mechanics is saying is that we invent the world. The world comes into existence when we encounter it, when we engage it, when we conceptualize it. Hegel is saying the opposite. Of course, mm -hmm. Marx will say the opposite that there is a world that, yes, it becomes 
for us when we encounter it. But there is what, what Kant called the thing in itself. I hope that makes sense. Doc, could I just, uh, you know, going on what you're saying, uh, because it's, I mean, there is this question of knowledge and, you know, what we can know or the yes. epistemology question. Yes. Uh, but then there's the, you know, the ontological question of whether the, um, and uh, is, do you think that the Bohr and Heisenberg kind of view, or actually first, I mean, what do you think? Because you kind of, you said Kant, when talking about noumena, uh, you said it may or may not exist. Um, and so is it just a question that we can never know it or is it that it doesn't exist? Right. And you know, is it, yeah. So that maybe if you could speak about that. This is very important uh, for everybody. The when we say the epistemological question, that means questions of knowledge and what can be known. When we say the ontological question, that is a question of what exists. For Kant, he put aside the ontological question. He said, you know, why even bring it up? It's an irrelevant question. Because whether the world outside of us exists or not, uh, we cannot know it until we experience it. It's only our experiences that we know. Okay. Um, mm. What was the other part of your question, uh, Raju? I'm sorry. No, I was just because the what you were saying was, you know, that we invent the world. Um, I mean, is that also making an? Uh, I'm trying to describe. I'm trying to see how that's related to Kant, where he's saying let's ignore the ontological question versus, or you know, we can never know it. Right. Uh, versus the idea that uh, uh, there really isn't, um, or that you know we really invent the world as it is, and there isn't a world outside of that. Yes, this is so important, so very. In fact, I would argue that the thought experiments of Niels Bohr and and uh, Werner Heisberg and and the others in that group, they went beyond Kant. Right. Right. I mean, I mean, and I don't want to confuse anybody, but they even went beyond David Hume. What Niels Bohr said is the world does not exist until we experience it. So Bohr's goes back to the ontological question with a radical claim that the world does not exist until we experience. In other words, he said that quantum activity, quantum being electrons, neutrons, you know, photons, these very small particles and so on. They only exist when we experience them. So you say, well, how can he say something like that? That's the first response. You know, is he on drugs? And I'm not going to say he was or wasn't. I don't know that. But how could he say we bring electrons into existence by experiencing them? In other words, for the physicists, by carrying out an experiment. 
until that ex until that happens, it doesn't exist. And whoa, I mean, that is no bullshit, man. That has consequences beyond physics to social science. And um, whew, you know, you, you get to, that's why it remains an unresolved philosophical question. A hundred years after those guys met in Copenhagen, let us, hundred years on, the philosophical questions that they raised are unresolved. Partially because the opposite side has been bitterly suppressed because of the Cold War. And the uh, uh, refusal to consider a Hegelian or dialectical solution to the problem. You know, that's why I said, now I could be wrong, but I made the claim that Hegel is viewed as a greater threat at this point uh, than Marx to philosophy and knowledge production and understanding. And it's precisely because he was so precise about the nature of subjective logic, the logic that we have to operate on and the objective logic, the logic of the world beyond us. So uh, just uh, let me just say, Hegel brings Raju the ontological question back into the to the equation of discussion. Kant said, "No, man, that's that's not worth even thinking about." And Hegel was bitterly, and I'm talking about cursing, bitter cursing opposition uh, to Kant, even though Kant had died by the time he's writing the science of logic. Mm. Can I just make one small other point and forgive me if I talk too much. Mm. This, remember we all, we were talking in the beginning that philosophy is politics by other means and it is how the question of quantum physics, the philosophical questions involved in quantum physics are resolved, has a lot to do with how we philosophically proceed to change the world. If the world is a subjective invention, if it's just our experience with it that brings it into existence, then uh, freedom, let's just take freedom, anti-colonialism, anti-war, you know, if these are not objective realities that are more than experience and mind and reason, then um, we could be trapped in an unending debate about 
well, is this really a war? Is this really aggression? Was it really colonialism? You know, I mean, because if it only exists when we experience it, well, experience is uh, infinite. I mean, everybody has, a, you know, an experience. So how do we change which we cannot, what that which we cannot determine what it is, what its essence is, what it's as I think as Marx would say, or even Hegel, it's laws of development. You want to say something, Emily? <laughs> well, it's not a full formed out thought, but I feel like it's finally coming together for me after weeks of discussing Hegel versus Kant, English versus German, but especially Hegel and Kant, this great debate between like the way you're re re like repeatedly describing it as or like even you bringing up freedom, it's making me think a lot of, for example, that that recent, the China-Russia declaration they just released mm -hmm. where they define democracy. So something like democracy, for example, like the difference between it being kind of a subjective, I don't know what the right, right words are, but democracy being something that's subjective. And like, so if you philosophically take the stance that I guess is Kantian in some ways, where it's like something only exists when you like invent it or bring it into existence, then it makes you, well, see, it's not fully formed, but I don't know, it makes you perceive democracy a certain way where like you can say that like Russia's democracy is not a democracy or China's democracy is not a democracy versus, I don't know, there's something very, I feel like the Hegel Kant thing also explains, kind of explains why like in that document that Russia and China just released where they're like, they make it a point to define democracy, like that there is an objective, like there's an objective reality where democracy is meant to like get closer and closer to fulfilling people's welfare, like fulfilling people's fulfillment. Um, I know I'm not describing it the best, but- mm -mm, You are, you are, you are. I, I would just add one, um, thing to it. You see, what the Russia-China document is uh, deploying is the concept of the historically constituted. That in the long history of humanity, there is an objective striving. And in this striving, whatever forms it takes, Certain, uh, certain practices, certain state forms are constituted. It's what we call the historically constituted. See, with Hegel, you cannot separate the 
phenomenon would what, what, what Kant would call the thing for us, the thing for man from what Kant called the thing in itself. You see, what Hegel would say, the thing in itself over historical time becomes the thing for us. And at higher stages of human social development, this uh, barrier, this separation between the thing for us and the thing in itself narrows. And that's the point of knowledge. Not to bring into existence things, but to acknowledge things that already exist. You're absolutely right. That is why the category of time is not as different for Hegel than for Kant. For Kant, time is a completely mental um, thing. It is one of the is one of the essential categories, time and space, through which we reason. For Hegel, time is also an objective category. And I, I just want to say, uh, just again, I, I want to repeat this. Where Niels Bohr and the people doing these thought experiments around quantum physics, where they went, I think was way more radical than even Kant was prepared to go. Again, you know, Niels Bohr said, look, electrons exist when we come into existence when we experience them, when we experiment and see their existence. This is very strong stuff. And that's why when the Cold War starts in the late 1940s and 1950s, the scientists were told, shut up and create bombs. Now shut up and you know, make iPhones or quantum computers. And the philosophers have been put to the side or sideline to do what we said before, film criticism, gender criticism, you know, um, to create quote unquote new narratives. So, you know, philosophy has been uh, weaken, eviscerated. Yeah, uh, if I could just, you know, to what you're saying, uh, the, uh, I mean, because I guess what, um, you know, and because as you're saying, if one thinks in terms of uh, 
just how people ordinarily think about the reality of the objective world this seems so far out mm-hmm. um and i guess what bohr was kind of basing his arguments on was the idea that making an observation or not can change the results of the experiment well that that's part um, of it part of it right that's right. look can i just I, forgive right. me for interrupting you raju yeah uh-huh. see i think he does say that and that's i mean i'm not I'm not ruling out, I'm not dismissing Kant, I'm not even dismissing uh, Bohr in them. That part mm-hmm. of Niels Bohr is mm-hmm. a, a brilliant observation. It applies in social science research as right. well as in phys- physical experimentation. However, right. he makes another claim, mm-hmm. and that is the claim that electrons don't exist until we experience them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. No, so I, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. Yeah. So where, where I was going to go with that bit. So yeah, you know, um, and what actually the paragraph that we just read, uh, where uh, you know Hegel is talking about uh, uh, the unity of the subject and object. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, how in uh, also, um, you know, that's why I think this is so in because. This idea that the subject can have some, you know, or the observation can have some, yes. like what you were saying also in social science, yes. can have yes. an effect on the result of the experiment, yes. um, is uh, also going beyond, uh, um, I guess, I don't know what you would call it, maybe a naive materialism. Um, yes, 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 um, yes, definitely. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. I agree with that. I agree with that. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we could ask Michelle to continue. Sure. Here and there on this web, there are not. Could you just do, read that sentence to bring to consciousness this logical nature? Mm. To bring to consciousness this logical nature that animates the spirit that moves and works within it this is the task the broad distinction between instinctive act and act which is intelligent and free is that the latter is performed consciously when the content that motivates a subject to action is drawn out of its immediate unity with the subject and is made to stand before it as an object then it is that the freedom of spirit begins the same spirit who when thought is an instinctive activity is caught up in the web of its categories and splintered into a material of infinite variety okay doc could you say a little bit more about how um this relates to the idea of you know political freedom basically well see and again you know, you have to, let's read this recognizing its time and place, uh, the language available to him. So when he's using spirit, um, he is talking about uh, the whole range of rational, experiential, 
and other uh, experiences of the human consciousness. Okay. Um, when he talks about freedom of experience begins the same, uh, oh, forgive me, when he, that sentence, uh, oh God, the broad distinction between instinctive act and act which is intelligent and free. Okay, now let me just stop right there. See this concept that uh, rational activity is liberated activity. Mm. If it is just instinctive, where we just, you know, do what whatever moves us or whatever impacts us, mm. that means that we are being determined by, by nature, by forces outside of ourselves, you know? Um, but free, uh, but we move, but human beings, especially when society and civilization reaches a certain level, and this is uh, Hegel, act with intelligence and as such are more free than let us say primitive human beings. Uh, and then he says right after the colon, when the content that motivates a subject to action is drawn out of its immediate unity with the subject and is made to stand before it as an object, then it is that the freedom of spirit begins. The same spirit who when thought is an instinctive activity is caught up in the web of its categories and is splintered into a material of infinite variety. And here, let me just go. Here and there on this web, they are knots more firmly tied than others. In other words, things to be uh, uh, broken apart so we can explain them, which gives stability and direction to the life and consciousness of the spirit. They owe their firmness and power simply to the fact that having been brought before consciousness, they stand as independent concepts of its own essential nature. Um, now, you're right. This concept of freedom, and see, they are. I mean, Kant. I mean, Kant and Hegel. All of them. Remember, Kant and Hegel are great supporters of the French Revolution. Um, Hegel had hoped that Napoleon would bring freedom to Central and Eastern Europe, which had not had a revolution. Uh, Hegel, along with Beethoven and others, was sorely disappointed that, uh, that Napoleon became more interested in empire than in freedom. And mm -hmm. by freedom, they're talking about, uh, here, we, here we go, Emily, democracy, a bourgeois democracy, a regime which would, allow, which would allow philosophy and science and reason over the authoritarianism of the church, of the king, of the landlords to rule. So philosophical freedom, intellectual freedom, freedom of inquiry, uh, freedom to think, 
freedom to go beyond dogma, uh, and all of that are associated with the rise of uh, a bourgeois uh, regime of, uh, as the French said, liberty, equality, mm -hmm. and uh, what, liberty, equality? Fraternity. Fraternity, yes, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. Hmm. So, you know, you're right, and, and you're right to ask that question, Michelle. He's also making more than a philosophical claim, he's making also a political claim in the preface here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of comments, but there's one in particular that if it'd be okay, I think it's related to the conversation we're having. Um, if I could read it out loud. Yes, please. Um, Jeremiah says, this discussion helps to clarify a speech that Song Ching Ling gave during the Korean War, which the Bandung and Viet Lao Khmer groups read together, quote, politically the imperialists drive for fascism at home, the few rulers separated from and against the masses. Economically, they drive from monopoly, the few rich against the impoverished people. Philosophically, they drive to idealism and mysticism, the few content in a never-never world, the masses discontent in the face of hard, intangible facts. It seems that Sung Ching Ling is saying that the philosophical strategy of the US ruling class during the Cold War was to sever the masses from history, to prevent the people from arriving at a historically constituted knowledge of reality. Absolutely, absolutely. And a historical consciousness, you know? Uh, yeah, that, I, I, so Chi Lin is uh, um, uh, Sun Yat-sen's uh, widow, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I also I thought the comment was also in the, like also is give has new meaning also with the part we just read. Like for me again, like I don't I feel like I'm still processing it. Honestly, philosophy is really hard for me. But like that part where he says it's the it's the part that we read the the distinction between instinctive act and act with, which is intelligent and free is that the latter come consciously when the content that motivates a subject to action is drawn out of its immediate unity with the subject and is made to stand before it as an object, then it is that the freedom of spirit begins. And maybe I'm just repeating things that you're saying, Doc, but like, I feel like that is actually important because like it, what it made me think about is also like, I feel like there's, Today, the there's so much, I think today, especially there's a lot of confusion about like what we're saying, like what freedom means and freedom, like, you know, there's this idea of like, oh, freedom is when you can give into your impulses. Freedom is when like each person can like fulfill what they feel is their individual truth, but really what they mean is their individual desires, selfishness. But when you're forced, when you're forced to like what you're saying, like human development, like when humans, when human, human advancement reaches, like it's continuously reaching and striving a higher point when an act is intelligent and free, there's that thing about you're separating, like when you can separate what motivates a subject and draw it out of the unity and make it stand before the object. I feel like in some ways what he's saying is like, like we see throughout historical examples or the things that we take, the movements we take inspiration from, it's where you can like, I don't know, you can take 
the motivation of like, like say the strivings of ordinary people, like this, this aspiration to eliminate poverty, or you can start to like separate it and actually put it in front of the subject. So that it becomes an object and it starts to become an ideal that like not just human beings, but societies can like aspire towards. Is that accurate or am well, I- Well, I, 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 would, I would go a little slower. Uh, first, <laughs> um, uh, uh, first of all, we cannot uh, not understand that what Hegel is talking about is bourgeois freedom. And so the freedom that he uh, is talking about is the same freedom that John Locke uh, would talk about or Thomas Jefferson would talk about. He is not talking about the same freedom, let us say, that Mao Zedong was talking about when he declared the People's Republic of China. Uh, a new democracy, as the Chinese would say, a new democracy. Uh, and um, so, so, yeah, that's the first thing. At this point, in what Hegel is writing here, in the preface, and again, I want to emphasize, this is the second and last preface the preface to the second edition, uh, where he has expanded the whole science of logic. Uh, a, a big, I, I, really a life determining project. I mean, he works on this till the day he dies. So what he is arguing for and what he is arguing against, we have to keep in mind. He is arguing that the subject does not bring into existence what is an objective world. Okay. What I read him saying here, and of course we're dealing with language and, you know, what I read him saying is that part of what is freedom is to recognize that there's an objective world. Another way to put this, and I think this is in Hegel, you might want to write this down. Freedom is the recognition of necessity. That's a hell of a lie. <laughs> It's like <laughs> dropping the 200 pound steel ball from the 20th story of a, of a skyscraper and it hits you, boom. I mean, freedom is the recognition of necessity. Another way to say that, freedom is the recognition of something that is objective and that there are laws of development of things. Now, back to Niels Bohr and quantum physics. They would say, and I'm, I'm kind of uh, putting words in their mouths, freedom is the recognition 
that everything is subjective. The world is ultimately, the world ultimately exists because I exist. There is no world beyond me. Is that, is, does that make sense, you know? Um, you know, we, we just have to keep working through this um, and keeping in mind what is Hegel saying and what is Kant saying and how do the two sides impact the revolution in physics, what is, which is called the quantum revolution. The revolution that says when you get, uh, and I, I just wanna, I keep repeating myself and I, I hope you don't mind. What they were saying, that is Niels Bohr, Heisberg, not Einstein, by the way, uh, just parenthetically, you know, in this debate over quantum physics, you know, most Western commentators, that is people in the United States in particular, would say that Einstein lost the debate, that he lost the philosophical debate. I am not prepared to concede that. I don't have, because it is a philosophical, it, it's now a philosophical debate. It's not just about, you know, um, atom crushes or these large, you know, whatever, you know, Raju knows what these, these, uh, the equipment that, that can do all of these experiments, you know, that's not, it is a, it's now philosophical. In fact, I, I could make the argument that Magna's defense was philosophical. The, the points of contention and debate were philosophical ones. And that's what I completely saw. I mean, whether the two sides, Magna and her, her committee recognize, I'm saying, oh, this is interesting. This is philosophy without saying it. You know, you could also say, this is politics by another name. <laughs> it's always that. I don't give a damn how you cut it. You're going to get back to philosophy and politics. You know what I'm saying? It's so interesting. Now, let me just say this, um, Emily, we don't have to have the answers, but we have to know the discourse and the debate that we're part of the world in which we fucking live and stop, I don't want to curse on my face, and stop BSing. You understand what I'm saying? I consider this whole pragmatist thing. This is why I get a little bit um, uh, exas ex a little bit upset with Cornell West. Good guy, good guy. But philosophically, you're not in the fucking game. You're talking about issues, uh, i.e. through pragmatist philosophy, that are not the fundamental questions. What we are talking about are the 
fundamental questions. We don't have the answers. You know, we don't have to have the answers, but we have to know in this great political philosophical discourse and debate, what damn side we're on. Hegel's science of logic is a revolutionary work, but incomplete. And the Cold War and uh, imperialist uh, philosophy and all that, you know, however you want to call it, all of that were committed to make sure that Hegel, the dialectical logic, the law of laws of logic based upon negation would never see the light of day in these discussions. I mean, I hope you all see what, now, you know, the way he writes, I mean, God damn, I wish he could, you know, Kant is such a better writer. I mean, if I were to choose writers or Hume, I mean, Hegel is the worst writing MF you could ever, but, but, this is revolutionary. That, that's the point I want to make. <laughs> I'm cursing too much, forgive me. <laughs> Doc, it's quite interesting, you know, as you're saying this, I'm now, you know, some earlier things that I had read are sort of uh, making more sense because, uh, you know, both of these, both Heisenberg and Einstein actually had uh, conversations and I would even say debates with the uh, Indian poet uh, Rabindranath Tagore. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. And uh, Heisenberg, after talking to Tagore, said, oh, now quantum mechanics makes sense. So Tagore at that time, I think this is the 1930s, was basically defending a subjectivist view. I can see that. I can there's see no, that. Yeah, there's no truth, there's no beauty outside of human being. I can see and, that. Uh, uh, Einstein debated with him and I said, I can't agree with you. Maybe he said, maybe beauty, but not truth. <laughs> you know? See, this, but doesn't this prove the point, Raju, right. that right. ultimately, you know, even though all of the bourgeois commentators have said that, oh, Einstein lost the debate. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I'm not prepared to concede. I think Einstein was still in the game, in the debate, before y'all shut it the fuck down. You know what I'm saying? They shut it down and made Einstein into this crazy looking, you know, uh, hair all over the fucking place cat that was a weirdo, a, a, an eccentric, you know what I'm saying? That's what they did. And then went on about making atomic bombs. Right, right, right. And I think I was telling you that David Bohm, who was most influenced by Einstein, he was sent to prison in 1949. Uh, and he was also defending the more, you know, the objective view. Really? He was sent to, yeah. in, in the United States? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then later he had to leave the country. I think he settled in South America or something. Because they wouldn't, they even took away his passport and wouldn't let him go to the Soviet Union, where I think he was trying to go. Yeah, so this is this this is this is no joke. This is no joke. <laughs> and people who think it is a joke, the joke is really on them. This is, you know, we're dealing in a sense with high politics. 
People have gone to jail. In fact, people have been executed. The Rosenbergs, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, uh, about this. Uh, this politics and this debate over nuclear energy and the politics of that and the atomic weapons, you know, Du Bois wrote, I mean, this is, this is high, high reckoning right now. <laughs> the can has been kicked down the, uh, down the street for too long. Now the chickens are coming home to roost, hopefully. Well, let me open my window. It's getting a little hot in here. <laughs> um, Michelle, before you start reading again, I just wanted to let our, we have a lot of comments, which are great. Like Jake and Danny have real, a really interesting back and forth or they have lots of comments, but I'm gonna save them for after we finish reading um, just so we can get through some reading. Okay, that sounds good. Thanks, Emily. Here and there on this web, there are knots, more firmly tied than others, which give stability and direction to the life and consciousness of spirit. They owe their firmness and power simply to the fact that having been brought before consciousness, they stand as independent concepts of its essential nature. The most important point for the nature of spirit is the relation not only of what is implicitly in, not only of what it implicitly is in itself to what it actually is, mm -hmm. but of what it knows itself to be what it actually is. <laughs> oh, geez. Just keep reading. <laughs> because spirit is essentially consciousness. This self-knowledge is a fundamental determination of its actuality. As impulses, the categories do their work and only, only instinctively, they are brought to consciousness one by one and so are variable and mutually confusing, thus affording to spirit only fragmentary and uncertain actuality. To purify these categories and in them to elevate spirit to truth and freedom, this is therefore the loftier business of logic. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I'm, uh, and and uh, please forgive me. I, I don't know everything he's trying to say here. And, and, you know, I think we have to underline trying to say whatever he's saying, he's not saying it too well, but there is the sense <laughs> that, there, that there is objective logic and that freedom and, and consciousness uh, or this higher sense of uh, spirit which is the more collective, uh, uh, like as in zeitgeist spirit of the time, uh, that consciousness is always in the process of striving. And that's what he's trying to get, get at. Mm -hmm. What we indicated as constituting the beginning of science and have just now recognized to be of great value, both on its own account and as the condition of true knowledge, 
namely the treatment of concepts and of the moments of the concept in general, of the thought determinations as forms that are at first different from the material and are only attached to it. This is a work that quickly gives itself away as being inherently inadequate for the attainment of truth, which is the object and purpose of logic. Yeah. Mm. Um, you, you get, I mean, even if you don't quite understand everything, you said the concept, the attainment of truth, uh, which is the purpose of logic. Now, this is very important. Uh, so he, yeah, so he, he has, it seems in a very obscure, I think obscuring way, he's putting forward this, this idea of a world beyond us. And that is, that is ultimately the break with Kant. Mm -hmm. A world beyond us, what we could call the objective world. Now, yeah, let, let's just hold, let's keep going. Okay. Oh, the other thing is forms versus essence. The right. form of knowledge, the human form versus the objective essence. We could come back to that. Um, while we're on this, this point of the object and subject, could I ask a quick question, Doc? Please do. Well, I wanted to ask, because he's basically saying that you have to, in some ways, cleave the object from the subjective experience in order to observe it or understand a higher truth, like a universal essence that exists in it. But what I'm trying to understand is what he's also saying about the necessity of the subject and its relationship to the object, because right. he's not saying what academics today would say, which is that the subject has no relationship to the object. And there's an objective, you know, this is kind of what the people who were responding to uh, Meghna's dissertation were saying, you know, how, I remember a point that one of them had made was basically, if you gather more interviews, gather more data, maybe then you'll come closer to the truth. But how do you know that the truth, how do you know that it was a quest, it was a philosophical question of like, how does one arrive at the truth? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm coming back to the question of what is Hegel saying here about the necessary relationship of the object back to the subject? Yeah, well, I think he is gradually showing that he's breaking with Kant. Uh, he's trying to set up the argument, the alternative argument to what Kant is saying, that if there's an objective reality out there, it is beyond reason. You know, what Hegel is kind of getting at, there is an objective world out there, it is not beyond reason, and that truth is to be found in the dialectical intersection of the object and subject that the subject is not just about rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, but about 
striving. There's this, you already get in Hegel, this sense of the striving towards truth. And that is this movement is so important. The spirit, the sense of movement is so important, I think, in him. Now, you see, he's going to raise again this question of determination. I don't want to, let's not, let's not get into that right now, but keep it in mind. How do you determine mm. what is the truth? Mm. Or how do you determine what, uh, how do you say, it? whether a thing exists on its own? or whether or not we bring it into existence. The world exists only because we exist. That's Niels Bohr. The world exists only because we exist. That is extreme subjectivity. Mm. Now in the hands of people that are about cancel culture, oh, you could they could wreak havoc because don't tell me anything. This is my truth, my real. Get the fuck out of here. You understand? Mm -hmm. It's so unreasonable. As you know, to be, you know, it's like cats coming at you with pitchforks, saying, I'm going to ultimately cancel you by taking you to completely out. But Hegel is, is already beginning to re. Uh, redefine, relocate certain fundamental concepts that were taken as foundational in Kantian philosophy. Mm. We are witnessing the upsetting of an old, of a dominant rationalist perspective, that is the Kantian perspective by Hegel. Many people, in fact, most philosophers, most scientists would say that in this Hegel lost. Again, I say, I'm not prepared to concede that. You know, I'm not, like I'm not prepared to concede that Einstein lost. That's what one side who has a a political position. That's what you all say. I'm not prepared to say that. Does that make sense, uh, Michelle? I'm sorry if I. Yeah, um, I can continue reading. Yes, okay. For as mere forms, as distinct from the content. Okay, but quickly. Form and content. Always, when you see that, the question is, what is the content? Is it an objective content? And thought is the form of our reflection of it? Or is the content completely subjective? By which I mean, we bring the content into existence by our existence.
Well, when Hegel is describing content here, is it synonymous with that universal essence that we talked about earlier? I think, let me, let me just uh, plead that I, I don't know right now. Let's see how it works. Okay, out. okay. It, yeah, I have to I'll see. keep reading, I'll keep okay. reading. For yeah, yeah. as mere forms as distinct from the content, such concepts and their moments are taken in a determination that stamps them as finite and makes them unfit to hold the truth which is in itself infinite. Hmm. Hmm. The dialectic of the finite and the infinite. Wow. So you're talking about a, a movement towards something, a movement of the infinite toward, the finite towards the infinite. And whether we understand everything he's saying, the point is the sense of movement. Hmm. In whatever respect, the true may otherwise be again associated with restriction and finitude. This aspect is the side of its negation, of its untruth and lack of actuality, even of its cessation and not of the affirmation which, as the true, it is. So he's talking about form here. Yes. Interesting. Confronted by the barrenness of the merely formal categories, healthy common sense instinctively felt that it had the upper hand after all, and it contemptuously relinquished acquaintanceship with them to the domain of school logic and school metaphysics. Now he gets, he's getting, he's getting, now he's getting, I'm in the, I'm in the fight now. Now I'm coming at you. Okay, watch. Yeah, he's coming in for the first jabs. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You feel it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of his spicier sentences that this might be the most exciting sentence <laughs> like rhetorically that we've read so far <laughs> in this however it underestimated the value that the consciousness of these threads already possesses by itself right it also did not perceive that when given over to the instinctive practices of natural logic especially when all acquaintance and cognition of the thought determinations themselves have deliberately been rejected. It is in bondage to unclarified and therefore unfree thought. Wow. The simple basic determination or common form of the collection of such forms is identity, which in the logic of this collection is asserted as the law of identity as A equals A. And as the principle of contradiction, so much has healthy common sense lost respect for the school which still holds on to such laws of truth and still busies itself with them that it ridicules the school and regards as insufferable anyone who believes that in following such laws one actually says anything at all. The plant is a plant, science is science, and so on in infinitum. Ad infinitum. On in infinitum. <laughs> <laughs> Regarding the formulas that define the rules of inference, which in fact is a principal function of the understanding, however mistaken healthy common sense might be 
in ignoring that they have their place in cognition where they must be obeyed, and also that they are essential material for rational thought, it has nonetheless come to the equally correct realization that such formulas are indifferently at the service, just as much of error as of sophistry. Right. Mm -hmm. And that however truth may be defined, so far as higher truth is concerned, for instance, religious truth, they are useless. That in general, they have to do only with the correctness of knowledge, not its truth. Okay. Wow. Oh, so everything, a lot of what we've been talking about, what he's attacking is syllogistic logic, which is a form of common sense. We all know that A equals A. And so what Hegel is saying, so we all know that, right? That's common sense. But it only applies in a very limited way. After that, it is the law of negation. It is dialectics. Okay. The inadequacy of this way of regarding thought which leaves truth on one side, can only, be can only be remedied by including in our consideration of thought, not merely what is customarily credited to external form, but the content as well. That's right. Hmm. What, what, hate, what Kant calls the thing in itself, hmm. the thing beyond experience and beyond reason. Mm -hmm. And what Hegel is saying, but that is where the truth lies. We must not be satisfied with just the thing for us, the, as we, the thing in our experience. Mm -hmm. It is soon evident that what an ordinary reflection is as content, at first separated from the form, cannot in fact be in itself formless, devoid of determination, in that case, it would be a vacuity, the abstraction of the thing in itself. <laughs> well, there it is. That it rather possesses form in it. Indeed, that it receives soul and substance from the form alone, and that it is this form itself, which is transformed into only the semblance of a content, hence also into the semblance of something external to the semblance. By thus introducing content into logical consideration, it is not the things, but what is rather the fact, the concept of things that becomes the subject matter. In this connection, however, one must also be reminded that there is a multitude of concepts, a multitude of facts. One way in which limits are imposed on this multitude has already been said, that the concept as thought in general, as universal, as against the particularity of the things vaguely parading their multi, multitudin, multitudinousness before indeterminate intuition and representation is their immeasurable abbreviation. But a concept is also, first of all, in itself, the concept. And this concept is only one concept, the substantial foundation, 
it is, of course, also a determinate concept. And it is this determinateness that appears in it as content, even though, in fact, it is a form determination of the substantial unity of the concept, a moment of the form as totality of the concept itself, which is the foundation of the determinate concepts. Uh. <laughs> Let's kind of keep going, see how he resolves all of, the, all of this language. Uh, just again, uh, just a couple of things. Um, uh, this thing, the word totality, uh, a moment of, uh, just go down a little bit. Uh, no, 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 uh, no, go where you, see where he says, uh, a moment of the form as totality, okay? Uh, totality uh, is an important concept, especially for Hegel. That is the concept of, um, the thing in all of its manifestations. Uh, we'll come back to that. Uh, this idea of the concept itself, which is the foundation of the determinant concepts. Um, we have to come back to that. This is, you know, he's, I think, tinkering around with logical problems. Um, a concept which is determined by other concepts, other categories, but he must return and will return to even, he said, he's saying, even taking all of that, you know, even seeing how, um, uh, let's say the concept of gravity uh, is uh, uh, determined by other concepts like space and time and other things, uh, even taking all that into account, uh, we must uh, not abandon the, uh, uh, the notion of striving to know what Kant calls the thing in itself, the objective world, the world beyond our concepts. So before Shelley, could you Doc, could you speak a little bit more about the because you know he's using this concept of categories, um, and also I guess also taking from Kant uh, these ideas of categories. But as you were saying, he's talking about a movement and a striving. Yes. Uh, and not fixed categories. Um, and uh, I, I think that, I mean, it seems to me that's an important thing also, you know, when we're trying to understand the world or even when we're politically thinking about, um, uh, you know, that fixed categories can be, um, a very, you know, can be a very dangerous way of thinking. So that's one thing, but also to talk about it philosophically, what he's trying to do. Yeah, first of all, categories are, uh, as opposed to concepts, are grounds, are, how would you, yeah, but categories are um, mechanisms of thinking 
that are necessary um, to think, to conceptualize. So a category is a fundamental ground of thought, of the thinking process. Um, yeah, that, that's all I would. Uh, and again, I, I, I have to plead uh, unclarity about some of this, and I'm just waiting for him to, to get to, to, to kind of sum it up, uh, to bring it back down to earth. Um, but what I'm getting is, and this I think is the key thing, that categories cannot assume that there is not an objective world. The reason for having categories is to allow us to know the world. This is in his thinking, in his logic. And that, uh, but what is the world that we're trying to, it's not the, not the world of us, it is the world beyond us, as well as the world of us, our world, our experiences. I could continue reading. This concept is not intuited by the senses, is not represented in imagination. It is only subject matter, the product and content of thought, the fact that exists in and for itself, the logos, the reason of that which is, the truth of what we call things, it is least of all the logos that should be kept outside the science of logic. It cannot therefore be a matter of choice whether to include it within the science or leave it out. When the thought determinations, which are only external forms, are seriously considered in themselves, the result can only be the demonstration of their finitude and of their untruth and of the untruth of their supposed being for itself and that the concept is their truth. Therefore, inasmuch as the science of logic deals with the thought determinations that instinctively and unconsciously pervade our spirit everywhere and remain non-objectified and unnoticed even when they enter language, it will also be a reconstruction of those determinations which reflection has already abstracted and fixed as subjective forms external to a material content. Okay, just, just I mean, and we'll we'll have to, you know, we'll be coming back. But the words that he's using, first, of course, determination, of, uh, of course, science of logic. You know, uh, for him, logic or the uh, uh, the science of logic is the science of developing. Uh, relationships. When Hegel talks about the science of logic, he is talking about dialectics. Again, and, and he makes this point, keeps coming back to this. Um, uh, that 
there is a world that is um, that we are connected to. And what he is saying is that world over historical time becomes a thing for us. Put another way, in the process of human development, of social development, we would even argue revolutionary development, new democracies, new freedoms, increasingly the thing in itself, the thing we do not know, increasingly is less a thing that we cannot know. Increasingly, it becomes something we can know. I don't know, does that make sense? Mm. Again, it is an argument with Kant. That's why he keeps using this thing in itself and thing for us. The thing in, the thing in itself for Hegel becomes the thing for us. Put another way, the world that is not us, that is not our consciousness, that is not our experience directly, can become the thing for us. That in becoming the thing for us, it and we are transformed. The expansion of human freedom, and I hear I'm talking collective freedom as well, or mainly, represents Humanity's transforming increasingly that which is beyond us to becoming something for us. Remember these two concepts, the thing in itself and the thing for humanity. Or as Kant put it, the thing in itself and the thing for us. Should I continue reading? Oh, yeah. Okay. The presentation of no subject matter can be in and for itself as strictly and imminently plastic as is that of thought in its necessary development. Okay, development, always development. That means over time. Nor would any subject matter require such a presentation. In this respect, the science of logic must surpass even mathematics. <laughs> For no subject matter intrinsically possesses this freedom and independence. 
The presentation would demand that at no stage of the development should any thought determination or reflection occur that does not directly emerge at that specific stage and does not proceed in it from the preceding determinations. A demand which is also to be found after a fashion in the process of mathematical inference. Very interesting. Just, just a couple, just, just to be, the word eminently, uh, eminent, and this is not the same as eminent. You know, I've often gotten the two confused and I stopped using, but eminent means um, immediate, uh, about to happen or pre immediately present. Um, the presentation of no subject matter can be in and for itself as strictly and eminently plastic as is that of thought in its necessary development. The word plastic mean, you know, uh, not porous, but you know, very uh, pliable, pliable. Oh, sorry. changeable, you know, that type of thing. Um, uh, uh, now, this thing of logic must surpass even mathematics. It's, it's his way of saying that mathematics, which is linear, and based upon the laws of formal or syllogistic logic, laws of identity. The science of logic based upon the law of negation goes beyond mathematics. Mathematics is one form of the application of logic. The presentation would demand that at no stage of the development should any thought determination or reflection occur that does not directly emerge at that specific stage and does not proceed in it from the preceding determinations. A demand which is also to be found after a fashion in the process of mathematical inference. But I must admit that such an abstract perfection of presentation must generally be renounced. The very fact that the logic must begin with the purely simple and therefore the most general and empty restricts it to expressions of this simple that are themselves absolutely simple without the further addition of a single word only allowed as the matter at hand requires would be negative reflections intended to ward off and keep at bay whatever the imagination or an undisciplined thinking might otherwise adventitiously bring in. However, such intrusive elements in the otherwise simple imminent course of the development are essentially accidental and the effort to ward them off would therefore be itself tainted with this accidentality. And besides, it would be futile to try to deal with them all, precisely because they lie outside the essence of the subject matter. And incompleteness is at best what would have to do to satisfy systematic expectations. 
Yet the restlessness and the distraction characteristic of our modern consciousness leave us no choice but to also take into account the more current of these reflections and these adventitious notions. A plastic discourse requires a plasticity of sense, also in hearing and understanding. But youths and men of such a temper who would calmly suppress their own reflections and opinions in which original thought is so impatient to manifest itself, such listeners attentive to the facts as Plato portrayed them could hardly be imagined in a modern dialogue. And even less could one count on readers of similar disposition. On the contrary, all too often and all too vehemently have I been confronted by opponents incapable of the simple consideration that their opinions and objections imply categories which are presuppositions and themselves in need of being criticized first before they are putting before they are put to use. Hmm. Lack of self-awareness in this matter is incredibly profound. It is responsible for the misunderstanding which is the cause of all others. The nasty and uneducated practice of taking for a category under consideration something other than this category itself. This lack of self-awareness is all the less justifiable when this something other consists of determinate thoughts and concepts, and these other categories also would have to have a place in a system of logic and be subjected there to examination on their own. This is most conspicuously the case in the vast majority of the objections and attacks on the first concepts or propositions of the logic, on being and nothing, and on becoming, which itself a simple determination contains, indisputably indeed, as the simplest analysis shows, the other two determinations as moments. Right, okay. So being and nothingness, the two opposites, the synthesis is becoming. That's kind of what he's saying. Thoroughness seems to require that the beginning as the foundation upon which everything else is built should be examined before all else. In fact, that we should not proceed further until its solidity has been demonstrated. And if the contrary should be the case, that we reject all that follows. This thoroughness has the added advantage of guaranteeing that the labor of thinking is reduced to a minimum, for it has before it enclosed in this germ, the entire development and reckons that it has settled the whole business when it has disposed of the beginning. Right, right. The easiest matter to dispatch because it is the simplest, the simple itself. It is the trifling labor required for this that really recommends this thoroughness, which is so satisfied with itself. This restriction to the simple allows free play to the arbitrariness of thought, which will not itself remain simple, but brings in its own reflections on the subject. Having good right to occupy itself at first only with the principle, and therefore not to let itself be involved in anything else, this industrious thoroughness, in fact, is the very opposite, for it does bring in the else, that is, other categories besides just the principle, extra presuppositions and prejudices. 
such presuppositions as that infinity is different from the finitude, content something else than form, the inner something else than the outer. Likewise, that mediation is not immediacy, <laughs> as if anyone did not know these things, are didactically presented, narrated, and affirmed rather than demonstrated. <laughs> so you see what he's doing. I mean, you know, the word uh, critique should be understood as investigation. And he's saying that we or philosophy has allowed, you know, the whole syllogistic uh, form of logic, the identity that, the, you know, and so on. And really what he's saying that the whole uh, scaffolding of Kantian um, um, uh, reason, reasoning has been accepted as a given. And he says, no, I'm gonna challenge that. Uh, form is not content. The inner is not the outer, the, um, and so on. So he said, you know, we have to begin at the, be he says he has, to, we have to go back to the beginning because there is something wrong in the very beginning of logic. You, you see what I'm saying? There is something stupid, I have no other word for it, about this didactic mannerism. At a deeper level, there is the illegitimacy of simply presupposing and straightaway accepting such propositions. Still more, there is the failure to recognize that the requirement and the business of logical thinking is to investigate precisely this. Yeah. Whether apart from infinity, a finite would be by itself something true. Likewise, whether such an abstracted infinity or whether a content without form or a form without content, an inner by itself without further externalization, an externality without inwardness, whether any of this would be something true or something actual. Right, very, very important. Back, he said, look, you know, all of this talk about, um, this is all about the subject. Uh, we have to question that. You see what I'm saying? So he's, you know, he's really getting at Kant and I guess uh, the followers of Kant at this point. Mm -hmm. But this culture and discipline of thought by which the latter acquires plasticity and overcomes the impatience of incidental reflection is procured solely by pressing onward, by studying and by carrying out to its conclusion, the entire development. Wow, you think we could take a little rest? Yes, please. Yeah, I mean, whoa. Oh, my God. <laughs> Maybe there's some comments. Uh, Maybe some people just... said good morning. I say, hey, what up? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's just one paragraph left. <laughs> oh, one, okay, oh, let's okay, do that okay. last paragraph. Okay, wow. <laughs> <laughs> We're so close to the finish line. Oh, boy. Whew. Anyone who in our times labors at erecting a new and independent edifice of philosophical sciences may be reminded, thinking of how Plato expounded this, 
of the story that he reworked his Republic seven times over. The reminder of this, any comparison, such as may seem implied in it, should only serve to incite ever stronger the wish that for a work which, as belonging to the modern world, is confronted by a profounder principle, a more difficult subject matter, and a material of greater compass. The unfettered leisure has had been afforded of reworking it seven and 70 times over. But the author, in face of the magnitude of the task, had to content himself with what could be made of it in circumstances of external necessity, of the inevitable distraction caused by the magnitude and multitude of contemporary interests, all the while in doubt whether the noisy clamor of the day and the deafening chatter of a conceit that takes pride in confining itself to just these interests might still leave room for partaking in the dispassionate calm of a knowledge dedicated to thought alone. Berlin, November 7th, 1831. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. Mm. You know, you could almost uh, consider this form of argument uh, almost legalistic. It's like a lawyer uh, or prosecutor presenting uh, his case before a jury. And he's pleading that let us return to the foundations of all that we assume. It's, um, and so this, this second preface is his last, it's, I guess he might be on his deathbed. He might have dictated it rather than written it out, which also raises a certain problem, you know, because sometimes dictating something may, means it's um, a stream of consciousness. Uh, so yeah, but he is making his case that this work is an attempt to clarify and to present an alternative way of doing logic. And what he will say, I think, in the introduction is this brings logic closer to modern science. And the whole rest of the book is like him going through, among other things, um, you know, all of the, at least in the uh, part on uh, objective logic, going through the various sciences uh, and proving that, um, that without dialectical logic, there's no way to understand what they're doing. And then the whole time he's saying, uh, the physicist and the mathematician or the chemist or others, you can't leave the fate of science in their hands you know, because they know what they're doing experimentally and whatever, but they have no idea of the deeper philosophical consequences of what they're doing. Another way of saying, and I think for our time, is that science, or for that matter, academia, you can't leave 
the whole knowledge production process in the hands of academics. Uh, one, because a lot of times they are um, indifferent to the larger and deeper political and philosophical consequences of what they're doing. Um, and, and, you know, uh, we, we talk about that all of the time here. Uh, uh, students and grad students and whoever else, I mean, ordinary people find these academics to be the worst, sometimes the worst narcissist and um, like I often say, king size babies, you know, you can't say anything, you hurt their feelings and, you know, <laughs> uh, but um, so, uh, so, uh, you know, Hegel is making an argument, I think it's a justifiable argument that you need a science of all sciences, a general way to, uh, to critique and investigate specific sciences. Uh, and frankly, uh, from a pedagogical point of view, from a teaching point of view, uh, it would be so wonderful. I mean, if you had, you know, elementary school kids or high school kids who, while they're studying sciences, are also studying the philosophical questions, you know, uh, this idea of separating philosophy from science uh, is only a way of making science inaccessible to the broad public. It's, you know, the, as they call it, the triumph of technique over purpose, of uh, career over truth, of, uh, of reactionary knowledge and science and scientific practice over revolutionary and humane scientific practice, you know? So yeah, again, what, what does all of this mean, you know? And this is ultimately what people like ourselves have to ask, what does all of this mean? Not just that this is what I, you know, no, I'm not just, what does it mean? And this is the great science of logic. And then of course, you know, uh, the intersection of science and art, of science and morality, of science and humanity, the separation of science from uh, institutions that are interested in money. Just, there's so much involved here. Uh, and of course, I, I just want to just last point, you know, when, when Bohr's and Heisenberg and all of that met, uh, it was the last time that science, scientists uh, showed themselves to, to have a larger purpose. And they were all prepared, they put everything on the line and they were prepared to be wrong. But up to this point, it's 
it hasn't been decided. It's, it's an ongoing debate. And again, I wanna say the reason it's undecided is not because of philosophy or not because of science, but because of politics, because of the Cold War, because they wanted to leave their imprint um, and, and their distortion and the fact that we're, you know, we're going back at this is I, I think it's I think it's a historical necessity. We have lots of hellos, good mornings, and comments. But before I read some of them out, um, I wanted to first let Nuri or Samir, Caleb, Serfina, if anyone also wanted to say anything before I read the comments. Well, I think the the last page when he says that we shouldn't proceed any further until we get basically the beginning principles, right? Absolutely. I feel like that like that really is important. And I feel like that's why we're going back to Hegel specifically. Like for the last few weeks when we've been talking about quantum physics, I think I didn't fully understand, but I think the discussion earlier today about like the difference between the epistemological question, which is asking like, what can you know? And then the ontological question, which is like, what even exists? And I think the interesting thing about Kant was that he wasn't even saying that something definitively exists or doesn't exist, but rather like the question of whether we can know it or not. But to, or more recently with the Cold War, with quantum physics and stuff, now there is the claim that you know whether something exists or not. And that now you don't really have to ask either of the questions, like what exists or what is known, because there's the assumption that I guess subjectivity or what you perceive is what exists. And I feel like that's how we get to so much of like the philosophical problems that people don't even want to face as being problems, like with Magna's defense and the questions that were asked, some of them were very they're about like, oh, well, like, why do people perceive things the way that they do? Like, perhaps what they perceive is legitimate, but you get caught in the question of like, what is the feeling or the motivations behind their perception? Or on the other side, you get very fixated on little facts, like gathering the little facts of A equals A, this exists, but you're not able to, I think, situate them within the whole. Um, and so I feel like going back to Hegel, <laughs> is important so that you get the fundamental of like human logic, not just like this equals this, or this is what there is, but I think why it's important. And so, yeah, I feel like the quantum physics questions, it even has to do with, I think how, yeah, like how people relate science to their reality, like whether what you take as authority or not. And I feel like if we were able to go back to these like deeper philosophical questions, it doesn't become like a self-indulgent thing of presenting yourself as an authority. But I think the, yeah, like trying to reckon with what human beings are capable of learning and even developing through time. And it feels like with quantum physics or that the way that thought has developed, it's, there is no more development after that point. It's already decided. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just, I really appreciated this whole conversation. 
I think um, Mao Zedong, and that's my introduction to dialectics, was Maoism. Uh, in On Contradiction, he compares, um, you know, how, how knowing to know cheese, you have to take a bite of it and therefore change the cheese. And so it can be, be very difficult to understand, you know, excuse the expression, but pure cheese or the essence of the cheese without changing it. So I think about that relationship between me and the world often. And you know, the difference between Mao and let us say Niels Bohr is that Niels Bohr said, our existence is conditioned for the existence of the world. Without us, there is no world. Without our consciousness and reflection, what Mao was saying, there is a world, there is cheese, and that to know it, you have to engage it. Doesn't it seem so simple, but then it is not, you know? Yeah, um, like when uh, we called Doc the other day and we talked about like postmodernism and art and stuff like that. And it's like, how do you, or how is there a worldview that doesn't see the collapse of the West, but then there's this art that is so decadent and like nihilistic and not worth anything really. Um, uh, like, I was just thinking like, yeah, it has to do with how you're thinking about the, I don't know what word you could use. You could use the world or history or even yourself, but um, it seems, it just seems like the way that you're thinking does not allow for, you know, um, you know, different, I don't know how it is, the language, the uh, way to investigate um, what is going on. Um, even, yeah, I'm thinking same with the dissertation presentation um, and even just kind of things that we talk about in free school, like why don't our, or doesn't our generation know a John Coltrane in the way that we know? Um, John Coltrane or King and so on. Um, these are people, ideas, um, values that we can use um, and that has like changed the way that even I think about, um, you know, I guess myself or or anything really because I think like even when I was coming into like um political ideas or something like that like in high school like it, it was always like yes there is the question of okay well how do I what is my place in in the world um and like what am I doing <laughs> and then there's like you know like just general anxiety anyway but um, but it, for, for, for me, at least it always comes down to like, well, why is it this way? Why is it this way? Like, why are we? 
um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. doing the things that we're doing, just like those kind of questions. Mm -hmm. um, and it's true, I agree with what you're saying about how philosophy needs to be studied with science. Cause like, why are we studying anything in science? <laughs> or like, why are we like looking into electrons or anything? What is the importance of it? What is the relevance, re relevancy and what is its purpose, I guess. Um, and yeah, and I do think that it's important to think about Hegel as a, as a developing thing. Because I think like now we're like, okay, well, how do we understand Hegel when we've been studying so much of like King and like, you know, these revolutionary figures and stuff like that. Um, but I think there's like a definite break in the bourgeois, like, you know, discussion or bourgeois discourse um, that Hegel brings in what you're saying with Kant, Hegel with the quantum uh, mechanics questions also. And that's important to point out because I think like, as we're gonna continue to, um, I don't know how to say, cause it's like, we, we know that we think <laughs> in a certain way we're trying to struggle, you know, for a revolutionary change for this process and things like that. Um, but just like what you're saying, I guess I'm repeating what you're saying um, in terms of being a part of the discussion. What is the discussion? And how are people talking about, right. um, you know, these, uh, how do I say, like, either whether it be like the theories that come out of the universities of the ruling class, or even like with how people, how the CNN is understanding, you know, uh, you know, Russia-China relations, uh, Russia-China relations, Russia-US relations, you know, why are they, um, setting up discourse in the way that they do. I think um, that is important for me in particular to um, understand how to, like where are the lines of the um, struggle being drawn? Um, mm -hmm. Because in like, I know that CNN will not point out that they're presenting propaganda or lies <laughs> like that, but you have to have a way to um discuss why and how they're doing what they're doing and you know that kind of thing um hey, hey seraphina can i just yeah, say one thing? i don't want to cut you off but I, I just want i don't want to forget okay yeah sorry i don't mean to keep no, going back no 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 keep going keep going it's so fascinating to hear mm -hmm. you believe me um mm -hmm. but but just two things i'd like to say one um on the question of culture and art, mm -hmm. I think what you you and Kathy did at the Henry Winston Conference, mm -hmm. uh, where you engaged postmodernism via the blues and Afrofuturism uh, via the blues and uh, revolutionary art. I think that was. A, a, a such an important um, uh, effort that you all made. And I, I think you helped us to come to certain uh, conclusions, certain understandings. The mm -hmm. other thing is just what you're saying. We cannot be outsiders mm -hmm. to great 
ideological debates, nor can we be passive observers, nor can we throw up our hands and say, oh, we can't know that. Oh, we, you know, this is too, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, we have to come at this in a lot of ways on our own terms. And uh, whether everybody understands what we're doing is not the point. You know, they will catch up. You know, they will ultimately understand what is going on. Uh, that's all I wanted to say, but you- Yeah, and the and, uh, way in which that other people can understand what's going on is if we're able to do as we're kind of doing and politically that's educating mm -hmm. other people mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. or helping to do that. Um, but yeah, I guess I was just thinking or reflecting about like just what, I guess what we've always kind of been talking about, you know, the political education and the process of developing a certain way or worldview. Um, Okay, I'll read some of the comments. Um, there are many, so I'm gonna hop around a little bit. Um, Nanta says, hello all. I felt I had to add Didi Kosambi's formulation to this discussion, quote, there is an intimate connection between science and freedom. The individual freedom of the scientists being only a small cor corollary. Freedom is the recognition of necessity. Mm -hmm. Science is the cognition of necessity, end quote. <laughs> I find these concepts, freedom, necessity, and science, and their relationship to each other so interesting, although I don't understand all of it, all of what has been said on it. Very important. And that connection that Kosambi talks about, and he get that comes directly from Hegel, that is that connection is objectively what Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg break. Mm. And that's, that's, that's what, you know, uh, Einstein meant when, he's, when he challenged them by saying, well, God doesn't throw dice. Uh, what, what Einstein was holding on to this concept of necessity, objective necessity. And that, that's where the debate is. That's why it's unsolved even up to this point. So I just thought, I think the science is the cognition of necessity Kosambi wanted to add to the uh, classic freedom is the recognition. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's a very interesting, uh, yeah. Um, we have, I can't see all the earlier comments, but many people are joining in. Kathy Jung says, good morning. Blaze, Nabila, um, Jake, Danny Jacobs. Sammy Chomsky says, good morning. Um, Stephen Palmier said, good morning thinkers and listeners. Truly this gathering is dedicated to asking the questions that provoke understanding. Right. And going off of Samir's um, cheese, example he says art is the human activity that eats the cheese <laughs> <laughs> um daniel daniel lee eisenberg jacobs 
clarifies that this preface to the second edition is actually written seven days before Hegel passes away. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, Which suggests he, he probably was dictating it. Wow, I didn't know it was seven days, yeah. Um, and then... Which, which means this is a life's work. That's, I mean, that's the point I was trying to make. Yeah, I'm sorry, but yeah, yeah. Oh God, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, and then Jake asked an interesting question in the beginning. He says, what's history's role in shaping philosophy? <laughs> well, for Hegel, everything. And that's why he returns all, you know, even in this uh, preface, to the spirit of the time, to that, and, and you know, interestingly, Hegel is seeing himself as pushing beyond the existing moment to a new moment of consciousness, of, of, of knowledge. That's what he sees himself doing, you know, or contributing to that. I, I don't know whether I'm being clear enough. And so to his dying day, literally, he was waging this fight. And let's not forget, the science of logic is a 20-year project, maybe a little more, 20, 25-year project. And he never uh, 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 gave up. He never gave, he kept this fight because he sees like Jake, you're saying, the historic moment. And he's literally seeing it as a revolutionary moment. And he's probably reflecting back upon the potential of the French Revolution uh, and the possibility, and this is you know speculative, what he is anticipating, I'll put it that way, is the emergence of Marxism. You see what I'm saying? And, um, and such. Also, just to say, like even in your point about uh, Kant and Hegel and like the whole thing about the, I guess, I guess you would put it like a bourgeois narrative, um, but it's like, what would it mean if like the ruling class was like not, um, if you will, like, that exploitative, I guess, in his thinking, or like, you know, if pragmatism wasn't based fundamentally in like imperialism, but something different. It seems like Hegel's kind of like pushing something into. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, just like for Hegel, for us, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, yes, uh, like D.D. Kosambi said, I mean, without freedom, there cannot be the development of knowledge. Mm -hmm, right. You know, the, like. Yeah, the dismal state that we find ourselves in in this country right exactly. now exactly. is a manifestation of that, mm -hmm. you know, that we are less free people than we were maybe a hundred years ago. Mm, that's true. You know, and universe, mm -hmm. I mean, it's so unless we transcend this moment, when I say we, this is an all humanity project. Mm. And, and, you know, hopefully the Chinese can lead to this new moment. Hopefully India, 
I mean, Asia is going to play a huge role in all of this, perhaps, because we are moving beyond the age of Europe. Um, and can Europe, by which I mean Euro-America, give the world another uh, philosophical and scientific revolution that they gave to the world in that period of the 19th up to the uh, uh, literally up to uh, the end of World War II. And then the Cold War shut it down. And then it festered and uh, degenerated to what we have today. Um, what you were speculating, Doc, about the um, I think you mentioned the French Revolution and how Hegel is anticipating Marxism. Yes. Um, I think Danny Jacobs also speculates that too and says, um, oh shoot, I'm losing all the comments. Hold on, give me a moment. Do, 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 do. Oh, okay. Kantianism becomes the object of Hegel's critique because of the French Revolution. If you base the truth on the empirical outcome of the French Revolution, then in 1812, the revolution was defeated and should have never happened. It would just be part of the slaughter bench of history, as Hegel puts it. Uh, Hegel part is a part, what, part of what of history? Um, it would just be part of the, quote, slaughter, slaughter bench oh, of history. Bench, slaughterhouse, yeah. Uh -huh. As Hegel puts it. Hegel is a partisan for the revolution. The logic is saying there is a higher truth than the, than the empirical, the transient. There is history, which is a metaphysical term. Everything that ends with a why is. And that you, and that you trying to think what is at all is raising the necessity of the completion of the democratic revolution. Amen. You know, I agree, except um, a couple of things. You know, uh, Kant uh, lived his, I mean, you know, he died, I think Kant dies in 1804. The French Revolution is in 1789. And, you know, even though Kant lives in a small German town, you know, you can see him jumping up and down cheering. Yes, yes, because he saw freedom as you know, freedom for philosophy and for science in the taking down of the aristocracy, you know? Just like for us, freedom is the taking down of this predatory ruling class and uh, such and such. So the other thing is, I think, for, this is just the way I'm saying, I think politically, because Kant lived through the French Revolution, I think he, was a bit more revolutionary than Hegel because Kant was down with the Jacobins, which were the left wing. And I think even the communists who were the left of them, you know? Um, so I, I, yeah. And they were both trying to, I, I agree with that. Hegel and Kant trying to come to terms with this greatest of European revolutions, maybe of world revolutions up to that point, the French Revolution, there was nothing like it until the uh, Russian Revolution. 
And everybody, I don't care who the hell you were in Europe in the 19th century are all looking back to the French Revolution. What can we learn from it? What can, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, adding on to our discussion about political freedom, um, Danny Jacobs says, the logic is related to political freedom in terms of judging which institutions are adequate. Feudal institutions, slave institutions, the feudal lords are not adequate, mm -hmm. irrational to the thought of modern beings, but representative institutions are for modern humans. Hegel says this is the Gothic architecture that was known in previous, previous eras. His political works follow, follow the logic as an extremely young Marx points out. Hegel is saying thought itself is condemning the ancient regime, the restoration as irrational, inadequate, wrong. That, and that's Hegel. The rational is the real. That's what he would argue. Now, of course, there are problems with that. But what he is saying is the rational is also that which is becoming. Oh. You know what I'm saying? Now, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, the rational, but he, but what he is getting at is that there's a historic logic. There is a reason, you know, uh, history proceeds mm -hmm. in a certain order, you know? Um, yeah, that's. Um, Jake also adds in the question, how does this apply today to current events? What is the purpose of Hegel in today's time? Which I think is in some ways a central question that we've been answering throughout this process. And it's, yeah. it's a good, like, it's a good central question. That's, and we're saying it over and over again. If you understand that philosophy is politics by other means, if you understand that a ruling class cannot rule if it loses the ideological hegemony, you know, uh, right. and to understand its ideological hegemony, you have to understand its philosophical underpinnings. And that's why the debate in, um, in quantum physics is a philosophical and ideological and political debate, which has to be resolved, you know, has to be resolved. It cannot be left hanging out there, but it is, part of, especially for us, our ability to understand the world in which we live. You cannot understand the world if you're politically and ideologically naive or indifferent. Just can't understand it. Um, he, Jake also asks, does this, does individual freedom mean individual desire? Are you saying that tr people are driven by selfish desire? What of the children? Um, but also attached to that, to Jake's question is, um, Saudia Durant also says, to Jake's point, I think people are naturally governed by their own self-interest to survive. And there's a fine line between that becoming selfish, selfishness or selfless. Well, I would say we'll return to that question, whether human nature is selfish by nature. Uh, 
that is the assumption of all British uh, empiricists and all British, quote, Democrats. I'm talking about John Locke. I'm talking about Adam Smith. I'm talking about even uh, Thomas Hobbes, uh, Francis Bacon, the whole British school of uh, democratic theory is based upon individuals are by nature selfish. It becomes an argument to justify private property. Uh, you know, I'm just a more uh, intelligent, selfish person than you are. I mean, we've seen the decadent outcome of all of this, uh, you know, with narcissism going mad. I mean, uh, so there is, okay, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, go ahead. I, I think the idea that, you know, this idea is always, it references the state of nature, which is mythological. So when John Locke, argues or when Thomas Hobbes argues that people are selfish by nature, they're going back to this mythology of the state of nature in which it was everybody against everybody else, etc. And that government and the state come into existence to process uh, this selfishness, to turn it from a negative each against each into what uh, can be managed to be a little more uh, uh, positive. Now that's the English school. Uh, the French school, Rousseau in particular, says that in the state of nature, people lived communally. And so people are by nature communal, not uh, bestial and, and selfish like that. But that's... Uh, but at any rate, human nature is a matter of the collectivities in which human beings exist and the consciousness that shapes those collectivities. Yeah, Saudia also um, adds in that, um, I think responding to the question, Jake, um, that question that Jake asked, she says, it seems more of a scientifically proven point than historically for me, but curious on others' interpretations for this question. Um, Perba, Perba had to comment, through this rich discussion, I am reminded of Du Bois and his belief that the human mind in absolute truth will approach each other asymptotically. Asymptotically? Yeah, where a curve approaches a line. Perhaps never fully. Perhaps never fully meeting. But that but that to assume that truth doesn't exist was unimaginable. Right. This I think is the very basis of human existence the striving for knowledge about truth that exists and making human reality reality that much closer to the ideal. Um, just to add, I was also thinking about like where philosophy is absent because it seems like um, 
even with Jacob and Saudi's um, discussion, like that's like, those are philosophical, like you already pointed out that like um, principles or discussions that have happened in the past. But I remember, and honestly, I think Kathy would be good at these things too, because in our history and stuff, they would talk about, or like not even our history, but it, it just seems like, or as in like not exactly what they would talk about, but in heart, our history, I would like going to that class. I take this class a bunch of times because of the schools that I went to or whatever, but it's just like kind of what um, you're already pointing out doc with like Rousseau and like, you know, the state of nature stuff. And then like, um, like the, uh, you know, um, even like the English, cause you know, I, I'm not gonna be, I don't, I don't know all the paintings, you know, that people would like point out as being like um, representative of a movement of art or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, um, and that's what I was like, okay, well, Kathy would know what I'm talking about. But there are like these, you know, um, philosophical discussions um, that are, mm -hmm. you know, almost acted out or like, you know, mm -hmm. you know, because this is so the thing with art is like, you know, um, it comes out of a, you know, a worldview or whatever people are of thinking course. of at the time. And so like the same thing with the impressionists or even if you think with like Michelangelo, there's just so many movements of, of art. And I would like going to art history as a class because then I would learn about like these ideas be like oh wow they're thinking and there's just like there's different ways in which that people are thinking we would talk about philosophy in a way through these like kind of through the study of like paintings and stuff like that but um going back to like other i don't know maybe it's just because i'm talking to other people in free school or whatever but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of philosophy um or maybe you know Oh, like, like there's, it's not obvious in which the, where the philosophy is coming from in other genres of study. And when I was like studying, even in history, I would be like, oh, okay, like he's saying something ideological, mm -hmm. not because mm -hmm. I was even coming to the free school at that point, but I just know that he's coming from somewhere and he's saying something for a reason. There's a particular moment in time that they're giving that. So I was like, also thinking like, well, how do I, <laughs> how do I know that? But I think it does come, back down to kind of like how they teach or at least i'm just reflecting on how they teach art in school and it it, it doesn't seem like there's that much hesitancy to talk about ideas but that's also because it doesn't feel like it really means anything or whatever like that um but you know just with sadia's and jacob's arguments or even um the discussions we're having it's familiar to me because we talk about these movements of of paintings and uh, you know in like the classical tradition or the europe or the western tradition mm -hmm. so i just wanted to throw that into the conversation yeah i'm gonna go okay. oh, oh hey raju i'll give yeah. you a call maybe uh tomorrow we'll okay. talk about okay. that book yeah yeah <laughs> bye everyone have a good Bye. rest, <laughs> good sleep. <laughs>
Um, Jeremiah has two questions for you, Doc. Um, he says, Jeremiah says, this goes back to an earlier part of this of the discussion, but is the black worker a category or a concept? <laughs> I don't know why you asked, Holder. Don't go any further. Um, one of the things I was going to say uh, about Meghna's uh, dissertation is that she uses, and I was going to say this in the defense, but I felt mm, she uses the Black worker as a categorical imperative. It is in the ways that it is used in Meghna's dissertation and in Du Bois's Black Reconstruction, a category around which, uh, uh, which is foundational to conceptualizing reconstruction and the civil war in American history. That is the great revolutionary and epistemological break that black reconstruction uh, suggests. So I would say, Jeremiah, it operates at a categorical level. I was thinking the same thing yesterday. <laughs> and actually that reminds me, um, Nabila asked earlier, or Nabila um, said earlier, I wish I could have seen Magna's defense. Oh yeah. Um, and I think we can let Magna know and she can maybe share her dissertation, um, her dissertation with whoever's interested. Um, and then the second question Jeremiah asks is, building on Purba's comment, how did Hegel influence the development of Du Bois's thinking? I remember Doc described Du Bois's use of the German Geist in the souls of Black folk. Right. But was Hegel a part of Du Bois's philosophical framework at that time? Or did that come later? Right. I, think, I think there's no question. Souls of Black folk is a, uh, he, Du Bois deploys um, Hegelian categories from the phenomenology of mind or phenomenology of spirit, however you want to, however it is translated. Uh, I was talking to Serafina about this. Uh, first of all, the double consciousness is really, I think, a development and concretization of Hegel's unhappy consciousness. And for Hegel, uh, when he uses the concept unhappy consciousness, it's using it in reference to the Haitian revolution. Now, you know, people are right. Hegel was racist when he said that Africa had no part in the world, the movement of world consciousness. But we also have to realize that Hegel was a supporter of the Haitian revolution. So he's racist on one speculation, but on another, he was not. And he saw this unhappy consciousness, what Du Bois will call the, um, the double consciousness which is in its manifestations and totality, an unhappy consciousness. But then Du Bois's concept of the first chapter of our spiritual strivings, that's, that's so Hegelian to me. 
And of course, the title of the book, The Souls of Black Folk, and we've seen just from what we've read today and the other weeks, uh, Hegel's deployment of the concept of the soul. Uh, and it, I don't think there is an adequate translation from German into English. I think it means the same as the spirit, the uh, collective mind. Um, so Du Bois already by 1903 is anti-pragmatism. There's no question about it. He's anti-Anglo-American uh, philosophy a la Locke uh, and Hume. And he is already in 1903, he's 35 at this point, uh, he's already more German and uh, German metaphysics uh, in his thinking. And he, he says as much, by the way. By the way, I consider uh, Souls of Black Folk to be Du Bois's greatest sociological work. It is in the Du Bois body of work, Souls of Black Folk is his great sociology, not to take away from the Philadelphia Negro and the great historiography is uh, Black Reconstruction. These are two foundations of the Du Boisian intellect or worldview. Okay, let me see which comments I missed. Okay, Daniel Lee Eisenberg Jacobs says, Self-knowledge, okay, quote, in quotation, self-knowledge is a fundamental determination of its actuality. And then he says, what Kant called a perception, not just perceiving, but I know I perceive is a necessary part of all distinguishing. As a fundamental determination is the further becoming. Mm -hmm. This also means when you read the logic, you are transforming yourself in, quote, knowing thyself. I think those are most of the comments. Um, we worked through a lot today. And yeah, man. <laughs> this is no joke. <laughs> Where's Michelle Liu? Make yourself seen, please. <laughs> She's probably resting after <laughs> having you... to read all that. My, my eyes hurt from the computer screen. That's this is my sixth day of, you know, that's what I was telling you. Yeah, yeah. All yeah. the time now. Yeah, I hear you, man. Plus that reading, you know, reading Hegel, this, uh, this preface is not an easy thing. I, I really appreciate you and admire you for doing this. <laughs> no, stop. I'm telling you, man, I, I wouldn't I'm just a do. humble servant, as you say. You're humble. <laughs> Until <Okay>. you're not. <laughs> Hey, <laughs> no, that each each framing and the way that you um, basically annotate our reading has been incredibly helpful. And um, and a lot of his language is becoming 
more readily understood, you know, the more that we keep at it, the same, the same language that comes up again and again, you know, thought determinations, et cetera. It's, it's been very helpful. You know, and uh, Michelle, I, you know, just, and I don't know this, and it would take, you know, Hegel scholars if there are any around, but, you know, I think he, you know, a lot of what we have in his body of work are lectures that he would give and his mm. search assistants would copy them down and then there would be back and forth. But this, uh, was this edited by his research assistant, by his secretary? But it, it does, in some ways it has that, that aspect of stream of consciousness, of dictation. And then at the end, it's almost as though he, like, Danny Jacobs said he, he died seven days after this. And he, the last sentence or two was him saying, you know, and this is my final word on this for the, you know, but I think I've, you know, in my having read this, I feel that the introduction is, is better written. And I feel that as we go into it, the specific chapters, if we get that far, uh, it, it, it's easier to read. It is easier to read, um, which meant that over the 20 or so years that he was writing this, he edited, re-edited, you know, and probably had uh, some of his students, grad students, whatever they called them back then, working with him on this. But he actually, and I would like to underline this, he saw this as uh, a revolutionary work that if he was successful would change the course and direction of philosophy. Mm. And uh, it would be, uh, at least for, in his mind, the final break with English empiricism. But uh, I guess I, I would say is, is that Kant's footprint in Western thought and then probably in world thought is much larger than Hegel's. Mm. Uh, I don't think we can underestimate the uh, diminishing of him Again, I would say, you know, he is associated in, in a Western narrative with everything dark, you know, from their point of view, fascism and communism. If they can show that Stalin read Hegel, then that proves that Hegel is no good, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so the excavation of Hegel is, I think, very important. Um, and it's sad that it, that it has to be excavated, that it is not a part of a wider uh, discussion. And I, I just want to make one last point. You know, we were talking, I think last time, last, or maybe the week before about Judith Butler, the quote, Hegelian philosopher. But when they say Hegelian philosophy, they don't go beyond the uh, phenomenology of mind. They don't do the logic. Mm. Um, 
I would say that is the case. Uh, even, you know, there was in the late 19th century, and even at Harvard, George Santayana, who was one of uh, Du Bois's professors at Harvard, he was a philosophy professor, and a Hegelian, but it was all the phenomenology of mind. So if that is where you, that is your takeoff point, and that is your end point in Hegel, Hegel is pretty much uh, a Kantian or neo-Kantian. And therefore a lot of what is called even Hegel is more Kant than Hegel. And um, uh, they do not plunge into these very political issues that are raised by the science of logic. Uh, a lot of people will you know, read his lectures on history, which is still not the science of logic. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this is the Hegel that we can be, quote, we can be comfortable with. But uh, everybody, I mean, if you take Marx, if you take Lenin, if you take Du Bois, you know, uh, uh, Black Reconstruction. It is history, the logic of history, uh, and the truth of history is to be found in understanding that there's a certain order, a certain logic. And Du Bois, you know, gives us this interesting dialectic, law and chance. Very, very important, we can come back to that. Mm. Whew. Kathy has one last thought before we end. She says, so true, Serafina. I was also drawn to art history too because of the discussion of movements and the philosophy behind the movements. And I liked learning about artists who act out philosophy through their artwork. So there's a training in philosophy through learning about culture and ideas. I'm gonna keep thinking about this. Something I also thought about when we talked about the great physics debates between Bohr and Einstein and Heisenberg was that I was reminded of how some of the greatest artists were enriched by being in close dialogue with other artists living in their time. Right. Whether highly principled or highly at odds, like the back and forth between Michelangelo versus Leonardo da Vinci or Picasso versus Matisse. That was really nice. <laughs> okay, well, I think that's a good note to end on. Um, has great meaning to end on if everyone else is okay with that. <laughs> I wanna say thank you to all of our listeners as usual. It was a really rich discussion and thank you to our participants today. Um, and we'll see you next week. Okay, let me